it seems now more certain than ever that the bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. But it is increasingly clear to this reporter that the only rational way out then will be to negotiate, not as victors, but as an honorable people who lived up to their pledge to defend democracy and did the best they could. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of The Front Lines of History. I'm Logan Miller. Although once allies during the biggest war in history, the United States and the newly named Soviet Union were now at odds with each other. Both nations worked to unite other countries under their respective economic ideals, the Soviets under communism and the United States under capitalism. One of those nations that lay at the center of the Cold War conflict was Vietnam, a small nation in Indochina. Vietnam was already in the grips of a civil war after their colonists, the French, packed up after World War II and left in 1954. The Northern Vietnamese, led by Ho Chi Minh, opposed the French rule, while South Vietnam wanted a more Western-styled government. Although the country was split in two at the Geneva Conference in 1954, both sides were in direct opposition of the other side. As the Cold War ignited, both the United States and the Soviet Union looked to Vietnam to help spread their government types into other countries. President John F. Kennedy called this the domino effect, that as one country succumbed to communism, other nearby countries would follow suit. To prevent this, the United States military directly intervened in the conflict starting in 1961. The U.S.'s involvement lasted for 12 years before the U.S. signed a treaty in 1973. The war itself continued between North and South Vietnam before, two years later, North Vietnamese soldiers captured Saigon, the capital of South Vietnam. The impact this war had on the landscape of the Cold War was nothing short of devastating. Over 3 million people died as a result of the war, including more than 50,000 Americans. Although the physical impact of the war was large, the emotional impact for the United States was long-lasting, and its effects are still felt today. War protests, civil rights movements, and a larger focus on the news and media accompanied the war effort. Since this was one of the first conflicts that was broadcast on television, the public saw sides of the war that had never seen the light of day before. Along with a greater involvement in public opinion, the Vietnam War signaled a rise in political strife, including the well-known Watergate scandal. To talk more about the Vietnam War and its impacts on the news, I spoke with Professor Lane Williams, a teacher at Brigham Young University, Idaho. He has a Ph.D. in journalism from the University of Maryland, was a Kiplinger Fellow at Ohio State, and has worked at Deseret News in Utah. He's also written several research papers on the Vietnam War and the Pentagon Papers. Let's get started with a little bit of a little bit of context. So the Vietnam War was in the 60s, early 70s. Did it creep right. into the 70s? So... Um, Some can say it started uh, without U.S. involvement in the 1950s, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so it, this was this was really in the prime of of television. This mm-hmm. was your, your, the big start of of uh, it's it's known to a lot of people as the tele, the first television war. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of a lot of different ways of of reporting on this as opposed to World War II, but yet a lot of the same things. So. Um, what was what was what was the journalism like in this era? What was characterized by it? There was almost no uh, censorship of the journalists during that period. I, I've not really looked at it as to why uh, Lyndon Johnson made that decision. Um, he, he just did, and so the journalists were traveling widely. Uh, one of the things that happened in that period was the government uh, had these press conferences every day in Saigon, and 
they were, you know, talking about how things were going well, et cetera, et cetera. And the guys on the ground uh, just said, this is not true. So it immediately created a deep cynicism as things began to play out in Vietnam. And I think that cynicism was deeply harmful to, uh, to a lot of things, but certainly for the military's idea to get its ideas out. Yeah, there was um, a weird <laughs> – at the start of – at least in the U.S.'s involvement in the war, there was a lot of, you know, that same kind of patriotism, I feel. There was a lot of that, you know, back the boys and, and work with uh, with what's going on there. It was a lot of, you know, anti-communist. You know, we, we want to keep uh, keep the Soviet Union's control on things to a minimum. So a lot of people were, were with it. As more stories came out, as more um, – coverage of the war happened. Um, obviously, the Pentagon Papers were really the pinnacle of that. Um, people really started to hate it. It was it, it became this whole, why are we even there? We're not doing anything. What's going on? You know, they, they, suddenly that's where, you know, that huge anti-war uh, message came from. So um, talk to me about uh, what the what journalists specifically what they what they did in Vietnam, um, any reports that they did, if there's any any particular stories that you or reporters that you are aware of from the time? Yeah, you know, so the United States involvement ramps up ramps up in sixty three, sixty four, and then ultimately the major come in nineteen sixty five. And you know we learned that the Gulf of Tonkin resolution uh, was kind of a farce. Uh, that that uh, that the grounds on which now it wasn't a declaration of war, but we went into Vietnam were probably overstated, and uh, and the the president knew it at the time, and he was looking for that opportunity. I think another thing about when we're talking about journalists, you kind of have to know the context uh, that that the war was very diff- was going to be difficult, and but. There's another kind of counter narrative maybe we'll get to in a minute that's interesting that um, General Westmoreland, President Johnson, the way they managed the war was so terrible that it, that, that it almost didn't matter that they were bound to lose. And there's an argument that Creighton Abrams, when he came in and replaced uh, General Westmoreland, that the United States actually began to win and that things were actually – looking like that they could have accomplished their goals of a stable, roughly stable South Vietnam. And now this isn't a story that gets told a lot. But within military circles, that's a pretty common framing. And there's a blame and a kind of distrust and frustration with the American press because they didn't tell what they believed was the actual story as it played out. Um, so as far as famous people, early on in that period, um, Morley Safer, the great CBS reporter. There are others who were going around, and he's showing American troops lighting people's houses on fire to right get the Viet Cong out. And if you remember, the Viet Cong were South Vietnamese who were in favor of the communist revolution. There's the North, the NVA, the North Vietnamese Army, and then the Viet Cong. And so they're trying to get the Viet Cong out, and it just you know doesn't. It, it just what a terrible image. This is what the war in Vietnam is all about. The old and the very young. The Marines have burned this old couple's cottage because fire was coming from here. 
And now when you walk into the village, you see no young people at all. Fire was coming from automatic, light automatic weapons fire was coming from all of these villages. It's not really one village, it's a string of huts. And the people that are, are left, come this way, Khan. The people that are left are like this woman here, the very old. Been in action like this before, Marie? No, I haven't. Not like this, I haven't. Did you uh, set fire to these houses here? No, we were just off to the left of it when it was burning. Were you getting fire from them? Somewhat, not too much. Just a little sniper fire. There were there was a course, and he's uh, David Halberstam. He's still in the news today. Um, he's writing about the destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline, and he's seventy five, doing it on Substack. He's a remarkable journalist. That we question, people are questioning of him, but there's a lot to what he does. And uh, he he reported in uh, of of a terrible massacre that occurred. It was called the Milai massacre, and Milai was uh, was a uh, that things got out of control. And they didn't know, and they started killing people. It was a horror show, and I, I think there was a, you know, dozens of people killed who were basically innocent civilians by American troops. And at first, it's denied, and then it gradually becomes proved to be true. And and these things turned against us. The other thing that turned against the war, and what when we're talking about a visual war in journalism, was what happened in 1968 uh, during the Vietnamese New Year. They they all of the Viet Cong just went on this massive attack. And it's all insurgencies, and there are people attacking everywhere at a famous city called Hue and in Saigon, where the capital was. And for five years, there's this three years, right, starting in 65, there's this sense that it's out in the countryside and that things are, you know, progressing. It's going slow, but they're progressing. And all of a sudden, this Tet Offensive is happening in the city. It's like we're, it's a, it's, it, the image is that we're losing control. And famously, Walter Cronkite, the great TV journalist, just basically kind of says, look, this is, this is not working. This, this war is lost. Those historians that, are, that look at it in the other way, they talk about it in terms of that, in fact, Tet was a disaster for the Viet Cong. It was wiped out as a fighting force. From then on, they were fighting the North Vietnamese Army. And gradually, even though the United States was started you know, uh, moving out, it actually was moving towards a place of stability. It's interesting to know what might have happened if uh, if that is a true statement. I don't know that it is, right? Revisionist history being what it always is. But the but if Nixon hadn't been so paralyzed by Watergate that he might have stayed with it a little bit longer and things might have worked a little bit better over time. Um, so you're talking about famous journalists, right? There's guys like Morley Safer. There's David Halberstam. Halberstam wrote a great book about, he called it The Best and the Brightest, where he was talking about the ideas behind it and William Westmoreland and the great, uh, and all these great tragic figures um, that happened. So uh, so it's very interesting. It certainly created the anti-war fervor. And there is no question that Vietnam was a tragedy and that we got in in ways we shouldn't have in the first place. Could it have been won by 72? That's an open question. Yeah. When comparing to World War II, I feel like these wars are vastly different. You have a completely different reason for fighting. You have different circumstances uh, aside from the physical differences of of warfare in, in World War II and now or in Vietnam. Um, what was what was different 
from from the news side of things and how how they reported on things was there a, a difference in- a huge huge difference um, there was a lot they were kind of they could go kind of wherever they wanted to and they did a lot of things and the visuals were extraordinary the television made all the difference every night at dinner time people are seeing imagery of this war in Vietnam people shooting guns lighting buildings on fire um, in the, color, too. In like color. Complete, yeah, it's yeah. early days of television. You also had some incredible associated press photography. There are two images that everybody remembers from the Vietnam War. There's this, uh, there was a, a napalm attack in, in, in a, you know, and a sweet young girl was running down the street and, you know, and, and just in, in pain. And then, of course, there was a, a North Viet, there was a Viet Cong guy who was, um, you know, who was had been a, what, some kind of terrorist, and the local general takes him out and shoots him in the street. And there's this image of him holding a gun to his head, about ready to kill him. And it's astonishing. There was a third one that was just really shocking. Um, Buddhist monks uh, were opposed to to what was going on in South Vietnam. And in 63, something like that, one of these monks uh, immolated himself. He lit himself on fire. And this was an international image about you know this ally that we're supporting and all of these things but uh so it was the imagery and they're un- it's unforgettable there's uh you know and the final image of vietnam of course is the is the helicopter going off the roof in 1975. gerald r ford is the replacement of richard nixon he's very weak politically he has almost no support in congress and the north vietnamese army and the Viet Cong, they had been insurgencies, small units coming in, and all of a sudden, in 75, they come down the the freeway in tanks, and it became a traditional occupation. And uh, the, all the people in the South Vietnam are going, help us out, give us some guns, we can now shoot them down, and all these things, and it just, it was a lot like what happened in Afghanistan. It was a disaster, and a national humiliation. Um, and, uh, and so there's the kind of those iconic images of failure of uh, and it, it, the country has been changed because of it. My research was about the interaction between the press and the media or in the White House. And things did change a lot. Um, there was a grave distrust and frustration with the media within the White House. So Richard Nixon is elected in 1968. He takes office in early 1969. After and and we kind of get it a little bit now how con, you know that January sixth situation uh, the the George Floyd riots nineteen sixty eight was a lot like that there were something we didn't have but there were multiple assassinations Martin Luther King was killed Bobby Kennedy was killed um, there were other people who were shot at um, it was incredibly violent and uh, just um, one of my mentors. Uh, was a reporter during that time period, and, and he said that he felt like the wheels were coming off. Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Police have issued an all-points bulletin for a well-dressed young white man seen running from the scene. Officers also reportedly chased and fired on a radio-equipped car containing two white men. Dr. King was standing on the balcony of a second-floor hotel room tonight when, according to a companion, a shot was fired from across the street. In the friend's words, the bullet exploded in his face. Police, who have been keeping a close watch over the Nobel Peace Prize winner because of Memphis' turbulent racial situation, 
were on the scene almost immediately. They rushed the 39-year-old Negro leader to a hospital where he died of a bullet wound in the neck. Police said they found a high-powered hunting rifle about a block from the hotel, but it was not immediately identified as the murder weapon. Mayor Henry Loeb has reinstated the dusk-to-dawn curfew he imposed on the city last week when a march led... Johnson had decided he's not running for president. He tries to put his political force behind Hubert Humphrey, his vice president, to be his replacement. And there are the more liberal elements, uh, Eugene McCarthy, Bobby Kennedy, that are rising up the rising up the the ranks. And the the Democratic machine, the political operatives, crushed the the opposition. The opposition, if it had been voting like today, probably would have won. But you know, they, there was a lot of backroom dealings they could do back then. And so, with those backroom dealings, um, it just it, it just looked like the wheels are coming off. Well, 1969 happens. And, uh, and, and Nixon runs a return to normalcy, a law and order campaign, and he takes 10 months to decide what he's going to do in Vietnam. And he prepares and works really hard to give a speech. And he has a program he called Vietnamization, kind of a peace with honor idea. We're gradually going to turn it over to South Vietnam. It's going to take a period of years. Many people are critical of him for that because more thousands of people died that otherwise wouldn't have. But that was his decision, so he made that decision. And immediately thereafter, we're familiar with this today, but immediately thereafter there was an incredible amount of uh, commentators getting on TV saying, this is why it doesn't work, critical of the president. And in those times, that actually was a little bit unusual. And you have to remember, there's the radio, there's the TV, uh, and then there's the print. There isn't social media. There isn't this. So a television network would show this speech and then they'd have people talking about it and commenting on it. That's like cable news today, but that was kind of an innovation and new then. And so Nixon and his people were frustrated. They were frustrated at it. And they said, how can we get more attention? Well, coincidentally, a vice president, an interesting figure named Spiro Agnew, Vice President Agnew um, is the only vice president to resign in disgrace, which is interesting because the president that picked him also resigned in disgrace. Um, Spiro Agnew uh, was hawkish on the war. And one of the things he started doing is he'd go out and he'd give these speeches critical. And he had a pretty good writer with him. And he called the press the nattering nabobs of negativism. Or he, he would call liberals an effete core of impudent snobs. He'd use language like that that was kind of colorful. And all of a sudden, he's getting attention because he's saying things that are kind of caustic. Well, in that way, maybe he's ahead of the time. And the principal infatuations of today revolve around the social sciences, those subjects which can accommodate any opinion and about which the most reckless conjecture cannot be discredited. Education is being redefined at the demand of the uneducated to suit the ideas of the uneducated. The student now goes to college to proclaim rather than to learn. The lessons of the past are ignored and obliterated in a contemporary antagonism known as the generation gap. A spirit of national masochism prevails, encouraged by an effete core of impudent snobs who characterize themselves as intellectuals. They all get together, Nixon's staff, and they say, how about we do this? It was kind of a creative idea. They're angry at the coverage they're getting, and they say, 
to uh, to Spiro Agnew. They say, how about we do this? And they call up the press and they say, how about we respond? If you guys are so fair-minded, um, you're going to put us on and let us criticize you. And Vice President Agnew went on at least one network. I think he went on two in prime time. And they let him give this talk about how bad the press was. I've studied the talks. Actually, pretty good press criticism for such an interesting guy as he was. The audience of 70 million Americans gathered to hear the President of the United States was inherited by a small band of network commentators and self-appointed analysts, majority of whom expressed in one way or another their hostility to what he had to say. It was obvious that their minds were made up in advance. Those who recall the fumbling and groping that followed President Johnson's dramatic disclosure of his intention not to seek another term have seen these men in a genuine state of non-preparedness. This was not it. It's really interesting. I, I was in the, um, I went to the National Archives. They're in College Park, Maryland, and, and they have these wonderful documents. And Nixon's office, they, they actually had three files. They had foreign files. Was that pink? I don't know. And then green was, uh, the green files were domestic issues, right? Foreign, domestic, and then politically sensitive issues they had as a third file. And included in that file are the daily notes of H.R. Haldeman. He was, the, he was the chief of staff. Mr. Haldeman ultimately went to jail for what he did in Watergate. And after this incredible speech, it's incredibly successful. At the end of the year, this is in November, Gallup does, who are the most admired Americans? Like Billy Graham is number one, Nixon no, uh, is number two, and Spiro Agnew is third most admired American. He delivers this talk and, you know, the press and you know, and all these things they're trying to do. They, they're sitting around after this, like, how can we build on this? And I'm strolling through the notes, and I, I hadn't been familiar with the scholarship, so I didn't discover this, but, uh, but it was new to me. And I'm scrolling through the notes, and you can see him writing. Haldeman's, you know, his, eight and a half, you know, his legal pad, and he's writing on there. He says, how about we create our own, this is their brainstorming session, how about we create our own committee where we control the funds. Now, what, what this was is this generates the idea that became what's called the Committee to Reelect the President, CREEP, is what the, the acronym was, which is the heart of the Watergate scandal. And so it was the response to the press and their anger with the press and how can we manipulate, and then that incredible talk by Agnew that led them to say, hey, maybe we can get away with this, and they created all of this. It's also, if, if you go online, You'll have people, there's things like the Media Matters and Media Research Institute. You'll go online and people make this, this actually important critique of the press where they say it's too liberal or it's too conservative, however they want to say it. That's actually an important debate. But in the Nixon White House, um, uh, Pat Buchanan would write this regular letter to the president where he'd summarize things and recommend policy. And in there he says, we've now learned a way to win elections. If we blame the press, we'll win elections. And so it was in that moment that a lot of this press criticism, which is inherently quite cynical a lot of times, emerged. In fairness, it's a very good question. And in fairness to Agnew, his, some of his talks, if you take them just on their basis, actually made some trenchant criticisms. So it's the response to the war in Vietnam that kind of really lays a wedge that we're still playing with, you know, 
all these 60 years later. A wedge that's gotten worse. Way worse. Way worse. Well, it was terrible then. It, yeah. it was terrible in the 60s. The, the 1968, I think you can make an, a case that, that we're right. There, there's been five periods in American history where we've had some real contention. And certainly now is one of those five. Certainly the Civil War, um, you know, and 68 was one of those periods where the contention was just off the charts. And, uh, and the press was interesting. It's sad, though, because like or dislike John Chancellor and Harry Reasoner and Barbara Walters and Walter Cronkite, these, these incredible, and David Brinkley, these incredibly amazing journalists, it did have one benefit to the country. There were only three networks, and there really was kind of a common narrative. And today, for better or for worse, you know, you go on Fox News, you go on CNN, it sometimes looks like you're in a different world. And that's frustrating because, um, and so that's enhancing that, you know, the, the, the number of channels, it's, it's now instead of us seeking out the news and there's kind of a neutral gatekeeping voice, even though they weren't perfectly neutral. Now, we, now it's almost like they're seeking out audiences by giving the audience what they want to one degree or another. It's difficult. It's difficult. Yeah, fascinating. Like there's, there's so much that that kind of stems from this, this just this particular point in history, Watergate, Vietnam. Mm. There's, there's so many different moving pieces here, and now suddenly we have media versus yeah. the government. Media versus government. Uh, there's, there's a couple other things that I guess are important from this era. Uh, one is, is I think forgotten outside of journalism. Um, there was a. There was a lot of people, including a correspondent named Michael Hare, that began to argue that we need to use new techniques. There are magazines like Esquire and different things. You might have heard of names like Hunter S. Thompson, Tom Wolfe. These were what became known as the new journalism movement. And Michael Hare's dispatches uh, from Quezon and some other places, they're, abs they're symbolic, they're beautifully written, uh, and they laid out the tragedy of war in some amazing ways. And, it, and if you read now publications like The New Yorker, um, the, the incredible Pulitzer Prizes uh, for narrative nonfiction, it was that era and a little bit coming out of Vietnam uh, that actually began to give us a place where we could do that kind of new journalism. Um, there was a book that was famous at that time, 1968, 70, you know, they called them Boys on the Bus about these reporters who began to question authority in new kinds of ways. It really was a transitionary time. Biggest thing that happened uh, from a First Amendment standpoint was what, was what you mentioned, the Pentagon Papers. Uh, what, an, what a moment for the American press. Uh, so uh, Secretary McNamara, Johnson's very tragic uh, Secretary of Defense, because he went into a war he didn't believe they could win. It's like, why would you do that? Uh, why would you stay with it? Why wouldn't you resign? Um, and then if you're not playing to win, then how did it go? He was this wunderkind, one of the best and the brightest, they said, from Ford. And he came over from Ford, and he's he's applying uh, quantitative stuff and, and numbers and trying to figure out to win. Well, when it's not going well, in 68, he has his staff do a very detailed uh, analysis of the war kind of went, went, went wrong. And he goes all the way back to the Eisenhower administration and the French and how we got involved. And it was a big, long document, multiple chapters, 
became known as the Pentagon Papers. Now, Nixon's president, it was done during the Johnson administration, but a man named Daniel Ellsberg, he's working for the Rand Corporation, uh, had access to it. He may have even, I don't know this, uh, I should. Uh, he, he had access to it. I think he may have even participated in the creation of it. He's, he starts leaking it to Neil Sheehan at the New York Times. And Sheehan begins to write some articles um, talking about basically the government didn't think we could win, but it got into it anyway. It was lying to us regularly. Uh, one of the horrible tragedies is the, the military uh, of Vietnam that really drove it. And I don't here I'm talking. I don't know if this was in the Pentagon Papers. I think it was. Is, is the military of South Vietnam killed the prime minister? Diem, it was a coup, and killed Diem, and um, and the CIA was was on board with it. Yep, and it was right before Kennedy was assassinated, and he's he's recorded as saying, almost like we got blood on our hands, and it was almost this quality of like, now we've come this far, we're in because you know, kind of like we've got to do it. And I wonder if that was so influential about the whole thing. Anyway, these whole things are laid out, the lies. The, the the bad choices that are made. It's all laid out in the Pentagon Papers and then the New York Times is writing about it. And this is kind of like, well, we all knew that this was a failure and it adds to that sense of failure. Richard Nixon uh, believes, and perhaps rightly, that it's a national security issue, that uh, that the United States, that these are security secrets and it's going to damage public opinion. So he tries the novel idea, which is to say that this is what we call uh, prior restraint. He says, no, you cannot publish. And if you publish, period, regardless of what's in it, you're gonna, you know, we're preventing you from publishing. Uh, you know, military things, Civil War, you know, maybe, you know, there were some precedent for that in the Civil War. Civil War is a different case because it was a time of sedition, but that was probably his logic. So um, Sheehan begins leaking to the Washington Post. And then he ultimately to the Boston Globe, the Los Angeles Times, Chicago Tribune. Just to everybody. To everybody, everybody who, who does it. And recognizing, it's one of the great stories, and there's a movie about it, Tom Hanks, called The Post. Recognizing that she would put everything, this private company, the Washington Post, everything on the line. She went ahead and published some of these leaked materials in the Washington Post. And then they're part of the, they're part of the lawsuit, and then you go from there, and then... The other papers came forward. So everybody stood forward with kind of some risk to their publications to say, no, we are going to publish this because, because the First Amendment matters. And so they all published it, and the Supreme Court came out on their side. So if – on a weird tangent, if you were in this situation as a reporter <clears throat> at one of these major news organizations, let's say the New York Times when you first get it, what – What's the thought process going through your mind? You just got these papers leaked from the Secretary of Defense. No, the Secretary of Defense, yeah, it was written by the Secretary of Defense yes. staff. He didn't leak it. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, but you get these papers and it outlines everything that went wrong, basically, mm -hmm. with everything that had to do with Vietnam, with even everything that led up to it. What do you do with that information? Obviously, the, these reporters, they, they reported on it. They leaked, they leaked that info. They wrote articles on it. They got the, public's, the public looking at it. Government went, went, went against them, and we had this court case. But what, what was the thought process there? I don't think there's any question that it's newsworthy. Um, there's no 
I, I can't make any case to not run it. It's not contemporaneous, meaning you're not getting military plans that like giving away D-Day the day before the invasion. You know, you're not you're not doing something like that. And it's an analysis. Um, and it was evidence that the government had been lying and that they knew it. And uh, and and yeah, you had to I, I don't think there was any question that it was newsworthy. So what you do is you try to find the news and you try to write it and you work your tail off getting it accurate and and uh, and you go from there. Yeah. There was a point for a lot of these reporters that um, they they valued and this is obviously the point of the court case was they valued the First Amendment, the First Amendment, the right of of freedom of speech, of information mm-hmm. that everybody would have have access to this. Was there something different about this in particular? Is there a reason the the court sided with the reporters on this as opposed to a government entity saying, no, you can't allow this. This is confidential. Well, it's, a really, this is- it's a really interesting question. Uh, the Supreme Court has not always been that way. Uh, one of the most interesting and tragic cases in American history was the Schenck case during World War One, And uh, in one of our previous discussions, we know how significant World War I was in terms of our creation of the modern media environment. Um, you've heard the phrases, uh, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, and you might have heard the phrase, a clear and present danger. These two phrases were invented in the Schenck case. The Schenck case has ultimately been overturned, but there were some socialists, and I've read their document. They were handing out leaflets, Mr. Schenck was, and it was basically inviting people to write their member of Congress and saying that we shouldn't uh, have a draft. It was an anti-draft uh, discussion, and that was it, that we shouldn't have a draft. And part of the dynamic with the Schenck case was Mr. Schenck went to jail for sedition, and he pushes it all the way to the Supreme Court, and he says, don't I have the right to speak? But it was during wartime. And so the argument was, no, it's a clear and present danger. I, I was sort of like, I didn't see the clear and present danger in the document. Uh, and so, by the way, if you ever hear somebody say you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, that particular Supreme Court case has been overturned. Uh, so, uh, so now you can. You're allowed to. Well, <laughs> I mean, you know, there might be consequences. You yeah. know, if you yell fire in a crowded theater and then people are, are, are harmed by that, you know, it leads to some kind of thing. Well, then that's, a, that's after the fact, right? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the nature of the law relative to it. And so, yeah— yeah, uh, why they decided, well, it was on the high, on those high principles of the First Amendment. I really think that hi- the history has had several different episodes, right? World War I being a terrible episode, the Alien and Sedition Act being a terrible episode. Uh, but the First Amendment is never easy. You say things and they have consequences. During the Civil War, again, it's a totally different case because it was a time of sedition. They... Uh, Military shut down multiple presses, uh, just like you're done. You're not printing in the South, and then would bring in a pro-union editor to publish it. Uh, they would. Uh, there was a man named Clement Vlandingham. He was a, what they called a copperhead. He was a member of Congress, and he gave a talk uh, about whatever there should be negotiated peace or something. And General Burnside threw him in jail, and it was a disgust. I mean, a member of Congress in jail. President Lincoln sent him to the South. I mean, yeah. And Lincoln, as I recall, the argument was basically, he said, you know, young men are deserting sometimes. And when they desert, maybe they're going to face the firing squad. And they're uh, they're kids. And I have to make that decision. 
And here are these elegant, rich people basically arguing that they should desert and nothing happens to them. How is that fair? Those are interesting arguments when you get talking about freedom of speech during wartime. And it's something that always has to be balanced. Um, the military has done a lot of things with embedding. Uh, you know, and I think, I think we're in a pretty good – if you look at how the war has been handled, it's not like we're not covering what's going on. It's not like we don't know what's going on, but there's a pretty good sense of sense of it. So it's really interesting. And when it comes to freedom of speech, uh, sedition might be a bit extreme, but that kind of same idea when it comes back to the Vietnam War, obviously this was the, one of the biggest, if not the biggest anti-war movement we've seen in U.S. history. When it comes to looking back at like the importance of obviously when it comes to to reporting on what's ha- what's going on, it's it's great. But then if what you're reporting on is against what the government's kind of pushing when it comes to this war in Vietnam, we're sending troops into Vietnam, mm-hmm. we're trying to do the, all these things, but the public is hearing all of these reports and going, this, this, this sucks, why are, we, why are we doing this? And now they're against that war. Where's the where, I when it comes to a specific event, it makes sense to call it sedition or otherwise uh, in a time of war something of yeah. of clear. Well, you know, the civil war is you know part of the country's literally making war right. in another part of the country. So if you're getting at the the protests were complicated, they got a lot of coverage, and they there's just a lot to it, right? They got a lot of coverage and they got a lot of attention, and they clearly influenced public opinion in a variety of ways. There's some people who thought, look at those hippies, and, and it may have been part of the part of the wedge that we're driving even still today and some of the consequences. Thousands of demonstrators opposed to the Vietnam War assembled in the nation's capital for a mass protest. For the most part orderly, minor scuffles did occur between the demonstrators and hecklers. A three-hour parade takes the demonstrators across the Potomac on their way to the Pentagon. The crowd estimated at about 50,000 persons was a loose confederation of some 150 groups and included adults, students, even children. It is at the Pentagon where the first test of strength comes. Military police contain the crowd, but clashes soon break out. Federal marshals arrest several who attempt to break through the protective line. Reinforcing the marshals, a second wave of MPs with fixed bayonets in scabbards move into position. Some 400 demonstrators are arrested, two soldiers are injured, and tear gas is used. Six break into a Pentagon side door, but are quickly apprehended in the day-long disturbance. The next day, campfires are lighted to hold off the autumn chill. The same weekend saw nationwide demonstrations supporting American GIs in Vietnam. The Pentagon protest was less violent in its second day of sitting in. Two-day protest ends with over 600 arrested and the widespread opinion that the demonstration made everyone a loser. My concern from that era had less to do with the anti-war movement, but it brought in radicalism into our American uh, education system. And it also things like um, uh, quiet hints of drug culture. And then we even moved beyond that to things like... uh, you know, uh, breakdown of, of the family can be traced to some of those ideas. Now, they're good things. The, you know, I think some of the power of the good things that happen with the feminist movement, certainly the civil rights movement uh, that came out of that, of those protests. What a time of, of challenge and change. Yeah. 
man. So would would we would we say ultimately that this chapter in in history with the way that the government handled the media, the media handled the war, the media handled the government, that this was really what started what we know today as modern reporting or modern, at least a, a normal, the normal public's opinion on what is modern media at this point? Yeah, it's an interesting description. The idea, certainly, that the press should be a watchdog on what government does. Now, that has that has long history. You know, you go back to the progressive movement and Jack Anderson and, and um, Stone uh, during some of the, you know, middle decades of the 20th century, but that's when it really comes to the fore. Government's lying to you. Somebody's got to tell the truth. And that could be journalism. And so, you know, it really, it, from where we talk about it, it was heroic. And it was. People took grave risks. I have a mentor, uh, Jack Anderson. Um, Jack was an investigative reporter during that period. He's passed away now. And, and Jack was, uh, he was, um, they actually hatched plans, I think, on two occasions to assassinate him for his reporting. And uh, cooler heads prevailed and told him not to follow through on it. But uh, that's the kind of thing that happened in those periods. And, you know, Woodward and Bernstein, some of the things they did. So it's it's an amazing time period. In some ways, it's a high watermark. And it's an honor to our country. They're in the middle of warfare. The, the press could write such incredibly difficult stories and people could get their word out. Um, and uh, it, it's really interesting. and It's really powerful. Um, but there is that contrary point of view. I don't have the expertise to know if it's just wishful thinking. But there's a contrary point of view that says things actually picked up after the Tet Offensive and that the United States, that South Korea, South Vietnam could have been a free country. Of course, one of the ironies, if you go to Vietnam today, and I have been to Vietnam once, it's a, it's a beautiful country. And though it is communist, uh, it's becoming a very free market and uh, very much part of the international order and probably if we hadn't gone to war, it would be about like, if we had won, it would have been about like it is today, you know, um, but who knows? Yeah. As, as kind of a final note, uh, when it comes to comparing these events to today, when we were talking about the, the weird difference between how media or news media is a watchdog for the government and how the government opposed media, and there was that that kind of that war, you know, with uh, with Agnew and mm-hmm. and all of these things. Um, do, do you think that that same dynamic has changed today? And if not, or if so, why or what what's going on with? Um, it's it seems like at least to me that we have at least two major viewpoints of an argument, and one seems to side with the government more as opposed to another, which seems to always heckle all of, all of government yeah. officials and things. You know, I think what's happened is we've seen uh, it, it's complicated. I, I'm i not one to pile on the American press all the time. There's a lot of really good journalism going on, but it is a fair criticism that American journalism uh, was, someti- was sometimes unfair with Donald Trump, and Donald Trump sometimes brought it on himself, right? Uh and that Republicans do get framed differently. There is scientific study based even from that time that shows that conservatives don't get the fair coverage. That having been said, every journalist I've talked to, you know, tries to be fair, believes in these values of fairness. And so it's, it's imperfect, 
but it's not always what conservatives say it is, right? But yeah, there's no difference, right? Uh, Trump calling the news fake news all the time. I mean, that's not helpful. Uh, that makes people distrust the press. And what does that mean? If you, if you can't trust it, and you're going to go to sources that are less trustworthy. I'm not saying there aren't very good conservative sources. There are. But, uh, but some aren't. Uh, some are terrible. And it's harder, increasingly hard as we get more and more niche what is, what's quality news. And, uh, and so, you know, maybe Agnew and Nixon are to blame for that, that we criticize the press for cynical reasons instead of trying to help it be better. Though in fairness, some of their critique was sound, uh, but just doing it for cynical reasons um, has led to a, a pass where the United States media is about the least trusted in in the develop, what we call the free world, and it's it's unfortunate. As a final question, what is something that that we as journalists can do to increase fairness or the the public's opinion of our fairness in our reporting or in the stories that we make? Really great question. Uh, I think we have to be open. It's humility. I was so pleased. I'm not a, always a huge fan of the Columbia Journalism Review because, I don't know, uh, sometimes it seems, it seems a caricature uh, of what uh, Journalism Review could be. But they got a, a reporter of great uh, stature to look at the coverage of Donald Trump in what's known as the Russian dossier. And in great detail, they went through and showed the mistakes that were made in, in the coverage of Trump. And it's had grave consequences. Um, people make their own choices, but it, the distrust that emerged during the Trump presidency, and they were very good at making that analysis and really, really admire them uh, for that willingness to look inside I, for example, I don't see like Fox News looking at their mistakes very often. I don't see even the Daily Wire, right, uh, looking at their mistakes. But this was looking at the press. So that's humility. We have to ask the hard questions. When we make a mistake, we have to correct them. We have to stop thinking of people with different point of views as the enemy. It's always about individuals. It's always about the power of a good story. Um, it's always about always trying to get better. Um, and that's I think that is the story of Vietnam. There was some incredible reporting, great danger that went into it, uh, amazing work, uh, incredible reporters uh, who did really remarkable work, and those are the things that I'm, I'm fascinated by and admire. I admire the, the quality of the presentation, and we are the, the heirs of some of those things too. We're the heirs of the real great tradition of investigative reporting that remains robust in the United States, which hasn't always been. So a lot of good came from it and a lot of good lessons. Thanks for listening to the Front Lines of History. I'm Logan Miller. If you enjoyed the episode, share it with your friends. You can listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Audio clips were taken from the Library of Congress, CBS News, NBC News, and ABC News. The theme music is Far the Days Come by Letterboxd. The fight for the truth happens at the front lines. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you.